So good evening um, to our listeners again. Thank you for joining. Um, today we're tackling another topic for our Pride series. And this is about activism for non-activists. And we'll try to endeavor to discuss um, what activism is, particularly the LGB- in the LGBT movement, the changes uh, that we've seen so far, and we'll deep dive into the idea of holding spaces as a form of LGBTQI plus activism. And we'll also explore how non-activists can actually join the LGBT movement. And I hope by the end of this podcast, what our audience could get is a tip or two if they want to join the LGBT movement or any social activism and to really understand where they could start. So this evening, and depending on when you're listening to this podcast, we're joined by a former professor of mine, Ryan Silverio. And we also have a guest um, host for this episode, um, also a very close friend of mine from college, uh, Brenda Pereza. But I'll give them the chance to introduce themselves in a little while. So we'll start perhaps with um, your self-introduction um, and jump into your leadership journey and how you got into the current work that you're doing. And of course, how are you doing in this pandemic world? So maybe um, I'll go ahead. Is that okay, Ryan? <laughs> so, um, hi everyone. I'm um, Brenda Pereza. Courage and I go way back um, college days. <laughs> um, so, I am currently a um, uh, gender and development program coordinator for the Women and Gender Institute in Miriam College. And um, so, leadership journey. Um, I started in college, again, alongside our main host for today, Courage. <laughs> Um, which is a trend with your guests, no? parang something in common. Ikaw talaga nagsisimula ng lahat. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so it was, it started in the student council and it was really through um, listening to the experience of other students, which I am completely unaware of. No? Tapos um, knowing the, the inequalities they experience even in that um, small space and um, wanting to do something to see um, the change that we wanted to see back then. I think that's what spurred my um, leadership journey. And of course, um, my college back then was a very progressive college. Again, one of my professors is also Ryan. And um, they really had um, a great impact on shaping the principles that I have now. So again, now I'm 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 part of um, a feminist organization, Women and Gender Institute, and I think I found um, uh, feminism to be my anchor, my lens throughout everything that I do. And um, ngayong pandemic, ano, wala, um, lost a little, <laughs> um, trying to cope, trying to cope, um, but um, yeah, and trying to connect with um, other people after a long time. Yay! Hi, Reg. Hi, Brenda. I think this is like a reunion of sorts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I mean, 
Um, happy Pride Month to the both of you. I hope you're both doing well. Uh, the pandemic is pretty challenging. It's been almost, oh, actually more than a year that we were all stuck at home, can't go anywhere that much, can't do that much. And a lot of, you know, the, the usual stuff we do, meeting people have to be done online. And um, yeah, it's it's good in a way because you're still connected, but you miss the human touch. I mean, to be honest, I'm getting sick and tired of listening to computer-mediated voices. It gets tiring. So yeah, um, I'm currently working with ASEAN Soji Caucus. I'm the regional coordinator. And part of my work is to provide support to local LGBTIQ activists across Southeast Asia, uh, so that they'll be able to have the capacity, skills, knowledge, and, uh, you know, uh, to, for them to be empowered, to engage in different platforms like um, UN governments at the national level, fellow civil society organizations, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in advocating for LGBTIQ human rights. There's, uh, there's still criminal laws against LGBTIQ persons, and then Many countries don't have national legislations that protect LGBTI persons from discrimination. And there's been a lot of attacks, uh, reprisals against LGBTIQ activists. Meanwhile, the resources and capacities of local LGBTIQ organizations aren't that much. So as a regional organization, part of our work is to make sure that uh, local groups have the adequate support. And we do this by also engaging um, donors and key stakeholders so that, you know, resources can be provided to groups who really need those. So, yeah. So in a nutshell, that is what activism is, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> so much work being done yeah. at the regional there's level. No formula. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think Reg and Brenda, I think there's no formula on how to do activism. Right. You know, a couple of years back, one of my trans friends, uh, I, I hope I can name his name here, <laughs> but he <laughs> is from Side B, Philippines. And if he listens to this podcast, he will know who he is. <laughs> you know, um, so this friend of mine, uh, we were both together in, in doing lobbying um, for during the Universal Periodic Review of the Philippines. This was back in 2017. And then he told me, Ryan, you know what? You're so um, you're so privileged to have this opportunity to work full time in activism. Uh, I mean, you do it as part of your job. You extend your working hours to do more beyond what is expected. And then, in his case, he's in the private sector. He's working for a multinational corporation, but at the same time, he's doing voluntary work. You know, um, leading this. Uh, group called SIDB, which is a bisexual-focused uh, organization in the country. Yes. And, and I told him, you know what? You don't need to be working in an NGO. You don't need to be a full-time ad activist to do activism. You are in your company. You can influence your boss. You can influence the people that you supervise. You can influence your human uh, resource management officers to make your uh, company a progressive for an inclusive space for LGBTIQ persons. You talk 
to your uh, colleagues during Pride Month, um, you uh, influence um, your colleagues so that they'll be able to address you using your preferred name and your preferred right. pronoun. That is activism. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do it in many, many spaces. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, for, for of course, for our listeners who are still confused, okay, so now what makes activism different from other forms of um, protest or social movement? Um, could you give us like a elevator pitch of what activism is. And perhaps we could already go to the idea of what myth or what is something that you often hear about activism that you really want to negate or debunk? Okay. I think activism is first having a strong desire to make progressive or transformative changes in your society. You are aware, you are conscious that there are injustices, there's inequality, there's discrimination happening. And what you observe contravenes your deeply upheld principles. So say, for example, you consider yourself as an LGBT activist. Part of your principle is a recognition or affirmation of equality of gender equality, of human rights. And these are principles that you deeply um, hold on to. And these are principles that you think ha have to be shared widely across society. And it's not just having those deeply upheld principles. You have to act on that. You recognize that there are so many social institutions, many spaces where you can influence. And it depends on your capacity. You can act alone if it's necessary, or if you have the opportunity to meet fellow activists, form an organization or a collective, and do things in a collaborative manner. Um, you've mentioned earlier social movements. Social movements are not organizations. They are entirely different. Social movements are quite performative in a way that they exist because there, are, there is a repetitive set of actions towards a desired goal. So... Even if you are an individual doing a small act in your office, if that if the objective and the or the and the, or the intent and the outcome of that objective contributes to the larger goal of say, for example, um, inclusive uh, social spaces, then what you're doing is contributory to the ongoing social movements that are being perpetrated by um, LGBTIQ activists or human rights activists. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad Ryan mentioned that because, um, I mean, the, the definition of activism, I really agree with that. But going to the myths, no, um, parang isa nga sa um, pinaniniwalaan usually pagka um, sinabi yung activist is um, yung, um, the only form of protest is through rallies. Um, you know, you are automatically anti-government. Um, so those are some of the myths na um, I really want to debunk. And I, I, I did ask somebody who is non-activist and not so familiar with the, the field. No? And those were some of um, her beliefs. So yeah, and also this this assumption that all activists are part of just uh, one side of um, the political spectrum and automatically lab labeling activists, I think that's also another myth. Kayo, how about you? Mm -hmm. I share the sentiment of the myth where 
well, in Filipino, it's activista, diba? And there is such a negative connotation, especially right now, with the political uh, atmosphere, um, with also the issues of red tagging and stuff. There, people easily equate activism with what you mentioned, being anti-government. Um, and that's something that is very dangerous. That's a very dangerous assumption because given the policies right now, it's very easy to tag people. It's very easy to say that, ah, okay, you're, you're for this movement or you're part of this community and therefore you're anti-government. And now you're being targeted for state policies that may be harmful and not maybe but are really harmful and dangerous to or putting um peril in human rights um so yeah those are the things that i also especially coming from government i've been in government for five years i started in government and i appreciate what ryan mentioned where wherever you are, you could contribute to the movement, to the social movement. Because when I was in government, I had this ins- this this idea where I stopped being an activist. I stopped because there there's that mentality where you cannot belong to the same part because it's opposite poles. One is conservative, one is more progressive. So that was something that was difficult for me to reconcile when I was in government, where I tried to tame being part of the movement and stuff, not because I didn't want to, but because of the fear that I might be tagged within, like for you to be associated with these organizations is somehow different. It would really put pressure on your career. Um, So yeah, so that's something that I've realized over time. And when I started to reconcile that, that's when I became more vocal and became more accepting of the idea. And I know I could make change in my own space. I could assert my identity, my gender identity in this very conservative and very patriarchal space. And I could advocate for others, especially those who are not um, able and are also fearful that they might lose their job or they might not be accepted by the organization if they say who they are and really be part of, of that movement. So that's something that I resonated with, with what Ryan was saying a while ago. Um, and so- yeah. I think it's also because of the um, stereotypes associated with the term activist, you know, as you've said, activist in Filipino is activista. And activista is, I mean, the connotations around activista would usually be associated with the radical revolutionary movements, mm-hmm. usually espousing uh, ideal- leftist ideological um, stances. And then I think this is also because of the histor- historical, uh, the history of the social movements in the Philippines, I think we should also recognize that the Philippine left has has contributed a lot in terms of um, transforming, uh, you know, Philippine government institutions mm-hmm. from from the far right towards you know having a democratic space, um, and and I think. Uh, but but the problem, however, is that um, the actions that uh, have been, you know, associated with what it means to be an activista 
has not evolved. Right. <laughs> you right. know, like mm-hmm. I, I've, I've met, I've met so many people, including relatives of mine. When you know, I would say when I'm an activist, so they will usually think, "As practically the rally, always go to rallies. Yeah. Oh, you're always against the government. Anything <laughs> that government does, you have to reject that one." Oh. So so you went up in the mountains, na mundo ka. You went underground. No, mm-hmm. I think I think that uh, how we understand and concept or conceptualize the term activist evolves across time and space. We have to understand the current um, social context uh, where uh, or how activism can be performed. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course, there's still. A necessity for direct uh, collective actions. We need. We still need to do uh, protest tactics like rallies and and all these things. But then again, we also need to understand that there are people whom whom we can influence to support our cause, but do not necessarily uh, get influenced using such tactics. Mm-hmm. So, right. like I mean, rally, not all people are happy with rallyists or rallies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have to admit that, um, especially especially for some Gen X people that I've met. Um, I, I, like, there was a chat. There's a chat group where I'm part of, and this is a chat group of batchmates of mine in in high school. And you know, I've got classmates who are kind of progressive enough in some in in some of their political stances. But you know they really don't have so much appreciation over rallies and view rallies as disturbances. Yeah, of course. I mean, but but when you tell them, okay, can you support this particular cause? They're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the message is fine, but how we communicate the message turns off people. Right. Yeah. Which reminds me so much of a class in MC IS. Um, theories and methods of nonviolence, something like that. Um, I remember that class because we were exposed to different methods of uh, social activism. But over time, as you mentioned, over time it changes and it should adapt. I believe it should adapt with the current realities. Like now we have social media and how do we now use that platform in advancing our objectives? Which leads us to the idea of, especially that Ryan have been in the movement for so long. Now, so what changes have you seen in the movement, in the LGBTQI movement? And what are the changes that you still wish to see, especially in the near future? Are you talking about the political context or are you talking about how we do activism? More of the how we do activism. What have okay. what changes sure, have you sure. seen so far? Or if you also have um, significant changes on the political climate that affected yeah. how you are doing activism, that would be perfect. You know what? I started my LGBT activism at a time when people tend to romanticize coming out. Oh, it's a political act. You have to come out. Oh, you have to join the pride marches. Mm-hmm. You have to wear rainbow flags and, you know, be happy and, you know, jolly uh, seizing or occupying the streets. Yes, we can do that. Yes, that is very important. Yes, it is both a celebration and a protest. 
but it might not necessarily be applicable in different spaces. With my work in ASEAN Soji Caucus, I realized that there are countries where uh, direct, public, um, and overt uh, activism tactics uh, put activists and their constituents in danger. Um, let me cite one example. Um, a couple of years back, I, I met a few activists from uh, LGBT advocates from Brunei, and there was a plan to organize an Ida Hot event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. so the idea was to make it like a celebration, a gathering, not necessarily a public protest itself, but even just a gathering. But then again, when we were rethinking and rethinking the security risks of that, okay, fine, we are in a safe space, but what if something happens? No, what if the police comes? The, I mean, the LGBT activists inside that country might face more risks than us who will be visiting the country and will be there for that one-night event. So again, we, we rethought that strategy. So maybe it's not really a gathering that's necessary. Maybe, maybe activism can be done through, say, more private conversations like over coffee or over, you know, I'm over snacks mm-hmm. uh, without rainbow flags, without any announcement that this is an LGBT yeah, event. Happening. Um, yeah, I mean, like one one activist I've met uh, who said, you know what, I, I'm all I free, I'm free every time I'm in a regional space like in Ilga. Remember, Reg? We yeah. were together in Ilga. That was very. Yeah, liberating yeah, space. For, yeah, for some some of the activists who were there, it's really a safe and you know fabulous space. But when they go back to their respective countries, it's a totally different environment. Like one activist from Brunei said to me, you know what? Every time we always walk on eggshells. Mm-hmm. So do we consider them as activists? Of course, yes. As long as they do stuff to support the cause. I am not going to push them any further to do the romanticized public protests when these will put their lives in danger. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, some fellow activists are also quite um, unfair. Mm-hmm. Uh, we push and push people to do actions. And then the people get arrested. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Do we provide them support? Sometimes not. I mean, I think we really have to be realistic. That's why for us in ASEAN Soji Caucus, we are very conscious about security planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the political terrain where we work is really not that super friendly. And we've also seen a lot of reprisals, even in um, relatively open spaces. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Ryan, how did how did those challenges fare? Um, when the pandemic hit, because like um, for example, in our work, you know, it's um, obviously more difficult to organize. It's more difficult to do organizing work, um, especially to um, connect with um, other groups, um, communities. Um, did did this affect, or did, did did this have a significant effect um, in in your work in um, ASEAN Soji Caucus? Yes, it's training. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was like looking at my phones, my gadgets, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired replying to so many emails. 
replying to so many ch- group, uh, group chats, attending webinars. At first, it was fun, right? Yeah. Because you can get, get in touch with people that you haven't met. And then over time, you know, your fingers, your voice will get tired talking and talking or typing and typing. Um, yes, uh, it, it significantly changed a lot. I think uh, now... Um, technology mediates how we do activism mm-hmm. to the point that now we are so much reliant on you know Zoom, Facebook Messenger, Signal for a more safe <laughs> communications mm-hmm. platform, WhatsApp, name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. Second, and on a positive note, on a positive note, because um, because of all these webinars, these group chats, these online conversations, more and more people are able to participate. Yeah. When we do, and prior to COVID, you know, of course, there are physical events, right? Seminars, workshops, fora here and there. But there's also exclusion happening there. Mm-hmm. Exclusion number one, um, those who are part of organizations tend to, be get, tend to get invited. So individual mm-hmm. activists are left behind. Yes. Mm-hmm. Second, there are many regional spaces, regional workshops, international conferences like ILGA. We also convene those in Asian Soji Caucus. But we can bring so many people because mm-hmm. of the travel costs. Yes. Now, because we have to shift to online space, then we can expand the number of participants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then third, people get people have are more emboldened to self-organize. You know, mm-hmm. this, this month alone in June, my goodness, I'm so shocked to have received so many invitations, mm-hmm. so many LGBT events coming from so-and-so group. Even non-LGBTI organizations are organizing pride events. Wow. And of course, oh. like this podcast, Red, mm-hmm. this yeah. is also one of your amazing contributions for the Pride Month. Yeah. So I think... People get emboldened to do stuff around LGBT rights, which because I think it's easier to convene things in an online space. But of course, there are also repercussions there, right? In terms of access and potential backlash. Right. So yeah. Yeah. So Can I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. You, no, I just I just wanted to to acknowledge that it's easier now to. Well, for some, especially for those who have access, it's easier to organize or self-organize. Is this something that you've seen was not possible before when you were younger or when you were starting as a young activist? Was organizing or being part of certain events or for certain um, spaces difficult? Was it difficult to access them before uh, <laughs> compared to now, I mean, let's take for instance. Okay, the pandemic really changed, you know, significantly changed the the game, the ball game. But even before that, was there any? Have you seen any difference or change when it comes to trying to access these spaces? Oh yes, you know, I started my my LGBTIQ activism way back in. Uh, I was already in college back then, so that should be around 96, 97, 98, around those years. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult to get information. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, you need to know somebody from the community to be able to get in. And mm-hmm. because at that time, organizing tends to be kind of clandestine. Mm-hmm. People aren't 
so emboldened to speak around LGBT rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, like I've attended pride marches at a time when people would still wear masks because they're not yet confident to come out. Not the, not the face mask. Ah. Not like, the face mask. Ah, the face mask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the, some people would wear face masks and shades and a cap just to really hide themselves or not really join the, the march itself, but, you know, just in the sidewalks witnessing or taking photos. That was decades ago. So I think with um, now people tend to be more open talking about LGBT rights uh, and LGBT persons are at least here in the Philippines are also emboldened to, you know, to be proud about our sexuality or our gender identity and gender expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that causes a ripple effect to embolden younger, you know, younger LGBTI to come out and to normalize the language LGBT. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. It, it, it reminded me of a post that you shared recently about activists being technocrats um, <laughs> and how they're being more of like um, specialists rather than, you know, and it, it now with so much information and with I think with the formal education available to a lot of people that they're able to transition to being specialists or be, being experts SMEs on these matters. But that particular post also um, mentioned or somehow identified the the nuances and the negative effects, particularly on. Um, connecting and reaching people on the ground, communities, mm. um, people who are really affected. So how do we, I, I, I'm curious on that, part, what, what is your take on that particular post or that particular um, observation that more and more activists are becoming more technocrats and specialists with the tendency of being out of touch with certain realities. Yeah, I just want to add before um, Ryan uh, responds, no? sobrang, um, I, I, I relate to that both um, <laughs> very much in a sense that it affected, I think, my um, activist journey because, you know, um, our organization is privileged enough to have um, funding from different donors and usually sa trabaho ko, no, we do a lot of reports and even myself, no, who is already um, within um, the 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 organization i i get lost um with these jargons with the data that is needed um yung mga monitoring and evaluation ganyan although they're very important of course but then it also um made me feel na um ano bang okay so sige um we're going to pass all these reports and then close the project but what was what was done to um the people how did it impact and um yeah, so I, I also saw that um, post and was very much interested. So, yeah, what do you what what do you think about that, Ryan? Yeah, you know, let let me tell a story about that post. <laughs> it, it started it started with a series of conversations with with some friends and my boyfriend. Um, friends, because like you were talking about human rights organizations tend to uh, particularly in the global north. Um, tend to get a lot of funding 
to produce reports and researches, to win arguments uh, in favor of human rights, to document so many cases and statistics on human rights violations, etc. Of course, these are necessary. Um, if, like, for example, uh, the fact that you know human rights organizations are able to document cases of extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, um, we are not able to uh, to make good strides towards mm -hmm. you know accountability for those who have committed or, or the against the people who are behind the drug war. These are very important. I, I don't want to underestimate that. But the thing is, human rights work is broad. It goes beyond the legalistic ways of working. It's not just about gathering evidence and you know, arguing with governments um, using legalistic language so that your, your policy positions or recommendations will go ahead. It's not that. You also have to build a bigger culture in favor of human rights. You have to do a lot of community organizing. You have to engage with folks in the grassroots level. Use their own language. Um, try to connect with what are their priorities. If, say, for example, their priorities are food, gutom, pangangailangan mm -hmm. sa trabaho. Try to reframe your human rights language um, using or through the priorities that they think. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. And then number two, I've also noticed how our work tends to be funding-driven to the point that we have to program mm -hmm. our work according to the priorities of the funder. Mm -hmm. You know, all these frames, outcomes approach, outcomes-based approach, indicators, et cetera, et cetera. Funders are the ones who dictate that. Now, the, the problem is that, you know, okay, we've got money. Therefore, our programs will have to suit whatever the funders um, think as our priorities. Meanwhile, the communities that we serve have a different priority. Yeah. Now, let, let me cite one example. COVID-19 came. We work with so many LGBT organizations. Many of these are not legally registered in their respective countries. They don't have institutional funding. They rely on short-term activity-based funding. Mm -hmm. Now, we've, many activities got canceled. Mm -hmm. They don't have funding. No funding, yeah. Their members, their volunteers, because they, la they, they lost their income, they lost jobs. Mm -hmm. Now, for them, their priority is to make sure that their members have money they have food, they have, you know, adequate um, supplies, et cetera, et cetera. People are, at that time, were moving towards, you know, you quote and unquote humanitarian work. And then you've got funders who are supporting human rights or LGBTI causes saying, um, our funding is restricted. This is, I mean, those interventions, providing relief packages, cash aids, et cetera, these are humanitarian interventions. And our funding can go into that. So, you know, it, it gets frustrating that you ha really have to find a way so that, you know, what the priorities of your partners will be uh, met, will be supported. How do you, how do you reconcile that? You um, needs no funders and the needs of your, um, of the people, of the communities you work with. Advocacy. 
you really have to persuade your funders. You have to show you have to show to them these are the realities. Now, do you want us to make sense? Do you want to make sense to the organizations or partners that we do serve? We have to bend. We have to bend um, some of the restrictions so that funding will be made available. That's why last year, ASEAN Soji Caucus and several groups made this strong call to funders. You gotta support us. You've got to, you have to ease your restrictions. Right. We don't need so many webinars talking about the situation of LGBT rights during COVID. We need the material conditions so that LGBT folks who are directly affected by this pandemic will live with dignity. All right. So um so you talked about um seizing these spaces, you know, connecting more to the communities. Um um, voicing out more their needs, uh, more of their needs, mm-hmm. and um, from creating safe spaces, which have been, you know, which we have been doing using for um, the past years. Now we now go to um, holding spaces for under, other individuals through activism, and I think in this part we would like to um, know more or dive deeper into. I think the article you wrote um, for Rappler, you know, can you elaborate more on the idea of ano nga ba yung holding space as a form of activism? And I'm very curious to know what prompted you personally to um, write this article. Yeah. <laughs> well, it again started with one of those, you know, quiet um, rants at home. Kung walang magawa na you know, like, ano ba nangyayari sa mundo? Ano ba nangyayari sa mundo ng aktivismo? Why, why things are becoming like this? So, it started with a Facebook post and um, and then, you know, I, I, I said, okay, maybe I should develop this into a full-blown thought piece or an article, mm-hmm. at least to help reframe how we think activism in the time of pride. Now, there are many factors behind this. Number one, as I think as I've mentioned earlier, not all people um, enjoy a relatively safe space to do activism out and about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they want to do stuff. But they can only do things in their, you know, through online posts. Mm-hmm. Aren't they activists in the way how we conceive activism? Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number trigger number two. I was talking to some friends in the corporate world, mm-hmm. and because we, you know, starting the month of June, I, I saw some posts of you know fellow activists who have been criticizing corporate pinkwashing. Yeah, yeah. That was Why all of a sudden all these companies are putting rainbows Rainbow. here and there, blah, yeah. blah, blah. My, my personal take is this. You know, we, we do activism in many ways, right? We, we start with symbolic gestures and then we push, push, push forward, right? We make systemic changes in our respective organizations. We start with a commitment. Okay, I'm fine. In principle, I'm good with this. Now, I want to, I want to take actions. I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but of course, I also understand that there are companies who are really using LGBT, the yeah. LGBT movement or the LGBT communities to gain, you know, um, larger profit to, margins. <laughs> sorry, to, to, to get profit, right? To get their inch in, in the LGBT market. I don't want to name names, but yeah, I mean, like there's one fashion brand who... Mm-hmm you know, who featured a homophobic senator, yet at the same time supports what? LGBT mm-hmm. with all the rainbow marks. I think 
this this corporate this, this company needs to do some self reflection mm-hmm. but you know insiders inside some friends who are in insiders in some you know supportive company said you know we are really pushing things but the problem is that we are employees as well some of us are in the middle or upper management but we still have to do a lot of internal advocacy yeah so they they, they conduct a lot of pride events forum 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 here and there on lgbt rights so there are steps happening mm-hmm. right now and then third there are parents who may not necessarily be fully out and about and publicly saying that oh i am so proud of my lgbt child or joining the pride events or or part of the p flag but they're quiet in terms yeah. of their support mm-hmm. aren't they part of our movement mm-hmm. so there are so many people whose way of doing activism is entirely different from the usual strategies and tactics that we do and, and these these experiences did prod me to think about ah maybe as an activist who's, who's to some extent holding some leadership position within the movement i have to hold space for this which means i have to recognize their contributions little even if these contributions are little you know if if, if we consolidate all of these acts if we weave all of these acts they can also be a potent force for change mm-hmm. people who are quiet if we if we can still if we can continue to hold spaces for them and recognize their support for us at a certain point in time when when the political situation is right they can be mo- mobilized to, to take upfront political actions you know like in, in in advocacy for lance we usually frame this as the movable middle or the quiet middle right Just so, just just recognize that maybe it's not yet right for them to take, you know, bold actions. Right. But just to recognize, communicate, continue to engage with them in the way they are prepared to deal with you at that certain point in time. Um. So yeah. So those were the factors behind um, why I, I wrote uh, holding spaces. Again, I, I I like to say that um, the term holding space is not. An original concept. I, I only borrowed it from uh, a writer. Uh, her name is Heather Plett, uh, who wrote "holding" because the term "holding space" has been um, has been conceptualized in the context of therapy, of counseling, right? Like mm-hmm. you hold space for somebody who is undergoing a difficult situation. You are there. Mm-hmm. You are present. You recognize that the person is going through a journey in life, mm-hmm. but you don't impose. You don't yeah. control the process. You empower that person to go through that journey, mm-hmm. which is, I think, very, very important and very relevant right now, um, with all the small organizing and small little things that individuals really try to do um, in their own communities or in their own circle to contribute to this movement. So I think that's a good way to put it because. I, For, for the longest time, I've realized that we have certain ideas of things, but it's kind of difficult to explain it to people when we don't have the right language or we don't have the language to, to explain it or to uh, describe it. So these ideas like holding spaces and safe spaces, it actually is a conversation starter to 
broaden the conversation and expand the conversation and even empathy of others in understanding the journeys of individuals. I have a question for Ryan. So I'm I'm very curious because I'm part of this um group chat also on Facebook with um feminist and LGBTIQ networks. And I I I always see you no know, um that even in this online space, there's this power struggle between organizations. And not everyone is like you, um, who knows how to hold space for, for other um smaller organizations. Um, do you do you go out of your way to um to influence um other other leaders, for example, of other orgs to hey, maybe this is not, um, you know, maybe you should hold a bit more space for, um, for example, younger organizations. Or, um, Sigur, my question is, how do you how do you influence when, you know, power relations is very, very strong and there are people who really want to seize more of the space that's there? Okay, let me tell your story. <laughs> okay. Love uh, stories. A few months back, I, I, you know, we were organizing this big event, right? Um, the the queer festival. So I was in a meeting. So I was in a meeting with a, a queer feminist activist, a trans man activist, myself, and we and we were talking and talking about you know what what are the steps that need to be done? How can we shape this activity to make it more inclusive, etc.? How can we make it more trans inclusive? And then I realized I was like talking talking and talking a lot. And then, so this this, this um, friend and uh, colleague of mine, a gender queer, non-binary queer, uh, non-binary activist, said, "Ryan, can we let this person speak?" <laughs> and then, like, oh my gosh, he may talk at himself, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, that is an example of how how you have to intervene. Uh-huh. Like okay, Ryan, can you let somebody speak? Mm. Maybe we should we should listen to a trans man mm-hmm. to talk how we can make this initiative a trans inclusive space. So I think uh, I'd like to start there uh, because this is this can also be a lesson for um, us fellow LGBTIQ activists and also allies. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you might you know we might fall into because of our passion and our drive to. That's to true. keep things moving, to promote our principles and our causes. Sometimes we seize the space so much, and sometimes we speak on behalf of or speak over somebody. So I think it's also a conscious effort that hmm, maybe activism is not necessarily to talk and talk and talk. Maybe activism is to take a strategic pause or the strategic quietness so that people will be able to have the space to speak for themselves. I remember a couple of years, a couple of months back when Zozi Bini, the former Miss Universe 2019, mm-hmm. yeah, from South Africa. <laughs> remember in her final Q&A, she said, um, I think the most important lesson for young girls today is to take leadership. Mm. Amazing, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And then she said, to, to take up spaces and to cement yourself. So ooh, that's really a powerful statement. And then later on, cement yourself. Will you be in that space forever? forever. Because I remember yeah. I grew up in a generation within the human rights or even the LGBT movement that there are so many gatekeepers. 
you know, the mm. old vanguards who have been there for so long a time that they control the organizations and the movement. Mm-hmm. That's an example of how somebody can can cement themselves in that space. And that's the consequence of that. Yeah. So I think, and then I was talking to a friend of mine who's also a, 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 an LGBT and a human rights activist. Sabi niya, na, um, we need to let go of these spaces because these spaces are not ours alone. We are yeah. actually sharing this with other activists. So yeah, so powerful. That's a powerful to voluntarily message. withdraw yourself, to voluntarily decement yourself from that space and not let other people take it on is an example of holding space, especially in the context of intergenerational dialogue. Right? I mean, there are different generations of LGBT activists nowadays. I belong to the Gen X, sadly. And soon we might we will be considered the boomers. So uh, I think I have to I have to plan. All right, maybe yeah, I have to take some detach myself from all these um, power centers and let you know young leaders take it on. Okay, so I think you mentioned no, because we're always um, talking and talking, doing so many things. Sometimes we spread ourselves too thin. Um, and I do, I do see some of your posts, Ryan, on Facebook about well-being as well. I think that's the perfect time to segue to um, burnout in, um, as an activist. Um, how, how do you deal with burnout? And um, you know, how, what is your experience in dealing with it? And maybe some recommendations on how to, how to deal with burnout. Again, going back to um, holding space, we have to recognize that there are activists who are burned out, depressed, yeah. <laughs> a lot of mental health issues. Um, I think we should be fair enough and allow and allow folks to take the needed pause. If they need to take a pause or they need to take a break, it doesn't mean that they are, uh, how do you call this one? They are disregarding activism they're just taking this pause to re-energize get to know what their priorities are and you know get prepared again for another journey Um, so yeah I think let's hold space for them as well Um, you know keep in touch uh, share information if needed don't expect them to take actions um, if they need to be quiet on, on social media, let it be. But do not disregard them. Do not alienate them from the movement. Mm-hmm. And then for activists who are also confronting issues of, around burnout, I think one has to be kind to oneself. If you need to take a break, if you need to shut down your computer, if you need to detach yourself from social media, do it. Um, there ha- there were times where you know I, I felt so triggered. Even in my case, like seeing things on social media that I have to react, have to react. Yeah. Be quiet and still mm-hmm. choose your battles. Oh, right. Gosh, I think I have to say this. Like you know, as I remember, I remember a friend who's also who's an LGBT advocate. She said, "And as you grow old, you have to learn how to choose your battles." <laughs> That's true. I hope she's listening. Yeah. 
you sometimes don't really need to react on so many petty things. You know, for me nowadays, like, for example, some people might say something that is politically incorrect or not the right term as we want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I let it be. And then, you know, I'll just quietly tell that person, okay, you know what, you can, it's fine. I won't cancel you. Let's not yeah. cancel each other. Cancel Let's take the depth just to allow you to change things, change the language, use a better word next time. Mm-hmm. That, that's so true, no? Um, burnout is real in any circumstance or in any field that you're in. And it really has a toll on the individual, especially that society somehow doesn't really advocate for um, our individual well-being when we are in a collective space. Like we always have to be there. We always have to be present. We always have to be our 101% um, in all that we do. And I appreciate what Brian mentioned um, that this could actually be a form of holding spaces uh, for those people and for our own selves. Um, when we do all these things and we hit that wall where I cannot give anything anymore right now, I need to stop and think of myself and reassess what I really want to do. Because I, I personally had that um, in January. And that's why right now I'm picking myself up and doing all these because I have re-energized. I have found that um, peace of mind in that uh, three or four months. And now I'm picking myself up and I have the energy to do these things. So I really recognize that there is that needed strategic pause or silence for us to be able to keep going in all that we do. Right. Yeah. And with um, Ryan said kanina, no, choose your battles. As a young activist, when I was in college, nasabihan din ako niya na, Brenda, choose your battles. Hindi pwedeng lahat um, makikialam ka or lahat ipaglalaban mo. No? Mm. Um, you choose your, your your battles. So before I was like, ano ba to? Eh, gusto ko nga, ang dami ko gustong ipaglaban. But now that I have experienced burnout and I've, I've also stepped back and um, reassessed my um, form of active, activism, it really makes sense because um, we really have to take care of ourselves and um, we can't do everything at the same time. Um, so, yun nga, so I'm also in that phase, same as you, Rich, no, na parang I, I, I took a leave. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm, it's rebirth. It's my rebirth, kumbaga. Mm-hmm. And this episode is my first... <laughs> my first um, uh, uh, try, uh, my first effort to connect and to... Um, get in touch with um, my activism. Mm-hmm. Um, so my next question, I think it's one of our last um, topics. No? Um, Ryan, how about for non-activists? Like for us, um, we, we've had experience with that, but yung nga, parang we're starting again. How about for non-activists? You know, if they want to start um, taking action, where can they begin? Okay. Conversations. Start getting in touch with those who are doing activism. Try to understand what the issues are. Learn what human rights are. Learn what SOGSE is. Learn why, why people find the use of pronouns or correct pronouns important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So start with that. Like, for example, um, um, 
you attend the meeting and then start saying, oh, by the way, my name is blah, 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 and my, my preferred pronouns are so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Do those little acts, little gestures that um, you can do in different places. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So that's one. Um, uh, and then do conversations with your friends, with your parents, with your siblings. So kumbaga, you're starting from your, your immediate space, right? So where you are, like you're in, the, for example, you're a parent, right? You influence your, your children, your spouse, your household, and let bloom from where you are planted. You're in your school, you're a student, diba? You, you try to study, you try to study about, you know, LGBT rights and try to talk and talk and talk to your classmates, talk to your teachers, write about it. And then engage with your student um, council leader so that in LGBT staff can then be um, how do you call it mainstream mm-hmm. in, in, in your context. So I think that the framework here is start small and start where you are planted. Yeah. But again, you also have to be mindful of the risks. Mm-hmm. Um, LGBT activists and we don't want people to get more burned out and you know have our numbers dwindle. So you, you also have to think at the same time, okay, what are the potential repercussions of this? Uh, and if you think that this will put yourself into harm or danger, try to rethink a different way of doing things. Um, at the same time, I think part part of the journey is to build your support system because I think we have to we have to put it very clearly that doing activism puts you in risk. Not everybody not everybody appreciates activism, not everybody believes in the same way as you think. Not everybody supports human rights as as Reg said, there's red tagging, not everybody's pro-LGBT. You might, you know, get fired. You might get kicked out of school. You might get harassed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So build your support system. Try to get in touch with LGBT organizations and activists. Get to know what, what, you know, what, what protection measures are available just in case reprisals happen. So that, you know, if if you experience all these con- negative consequences, you know who to approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I think like in the context of the Philippines, uh, the National Commission, the Commission on Human Rights, they have the LGBT focal persons and they've been proactive in addressing um, cases of harassment against LGBTIQ activists. There are groups like Rainbow Rights who provides legal support, right, for um, LGBTIQ persons. Yeah. And there's the Psychological Association of the Philippines LGBT Special Interest Group who provides some mental health support um, for LGBT persons in distress. Build the networks. Mm-hmm. I resonate with that, starting where you are planted. Um, and this is something that I also learned in bridging leadership. You always you start trying to solve a problem that is somehow personal to you. So if it's something personal, you really 
connect with the issue and you're you're really um, interested in finding ways on how to solve this problem because it's a personal problem or this is something that you personally are experiencing. And from there, you look out and see in your community or in your immediate circle who else are also experiencing that problem or who else are also affected by that issue. Um, and then trying to co-own the problem and really um, feel having that connection and feel that you're not alone. What you're feeling right now, you are not alone. And there are people, unfortunately, there are people who are also experiencing it and sometimes even worse. Um, and then co-owning that problem, transitioning that as, you know, it, as time goes by, of course, it's not happening overnight, but finding that um, journey towards co-creation and finding ways to really um, think of new or tap into what have been done already in order to address the problem and the issues that we're facing. So I really resonated with that because I also started out because it was something personal. I'm, I, of course, I'm part of the LGBT um, community and I've experienced as a young adult and as a kid, um, the fear, the discrimination, and the inability to be yourself. So it all started in my personal journey. And then I, I've seen people who experienced the same thing. When I was in grade four, I had friends who were also experiencing that from their families, in their immediate, uh, in their classmates. So I really resonated with that, really trying to start where you are planted. Right. Um, man, I think um, one of the things I learned also in my college you know, is um, wh wherever you are in the space you're in, try to see um, which has more power, who has more power and who has um, less power and what are the consequences um, of having less power and how can you try to, um, you know, balance that or try to empower those people. So it can be in your in your class, right? It can be in your school, like where we started and it can be as big as um, the, the, the Philippines. So it really is um, very important to start where you are. Look at power, power relations. So it can manifest through um, gender inequality and, and, and other um, other issues. I also want to highlight what Ryan said about the importance of support group support systems because in, in activism it's so easy to lose yourself along the way. But you're you're giving you're giving so much of yourself no you're you're but it's also easy to um kind of feel defeated sometimes and maybe um the fire that's been burning um, um, can be put off. So it's I really I really rely on um, friends who believe in the same causes like uh, courage, you no, know, and other other colleagues and professors to um, parang re-inspire me and to to um, to tell me to, um, to to hold space for me while I I can't um, do so much as of the moment. So. Perfect. Um, yeah, this this has been lovely. This has been a lovely conversation and reconnecting with our former professor. <laughs> um, so for our listeners, um, where could they contact, for instance, if they want to get in touch with ASEAN Soji Cocos or 
um, get in touch with the activities that you are organizing and be part of that space that you're holding for others? Sure, yeah. We do have a website. You can go to www.aseansojicaucus.org. We are in social media as well. We have a Facebook account. We have a Twitter account. We have a YouTube channel. And we already have a Spotify channel. So I think that will just put the links uh, later (laughs) on in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got uh, recently we organized the Southeast Asian Queer Cultural Festival. There are so many literary works, visual arts, and films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an online festival. The website is still up and running, and most of the most of the featured works are still in that website. So you can visit the nice. www.cqcf.net. So Reg will just put the link later on. Yeah. Yeah, great. Brenz, I know you also have a platform. Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, in the Women and Gender Institute, we also do um, uh, SOGI um, trainings, um, gender and development training. So you can um, visit our website, www.wagi.mc.edu.ph, and we're also on Facebook. Um, you can just search Miriam College um Women and Gender Institute. Unfortunately, we don't have a podcast yet, but we might have soon. I will suggest that. So we uh, can also so we can also be on Spotify like ASC <laughs> and like Rumble. So <laughs> great. Okay. So for 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 this evening, uh, I really would like to thank you for your time um, and for joining me in this episode. 